from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Cry Havoc Company. Hello, and welcome to the Cry Havoc Podcast. Today around the table we have... Jenny Curlin, I'm an actor. Tim Davis, I'm an actor and a writer. Jen Reichert, I'm a writer. And Kit Lavoy, I'm a writer and director. Today we're going to talk about what happens when mistakes happen in rehearsal and on stage. The reality is in theater, which is a live performance art, things are going to go wrong. Actually, my very first memory of the theater is a mistake. I, I remember being in a Christmas carol when I was in the fifth grade, and I was playing cousin, nephew, Fred. Nephew Fred, is that who it is? Scrooge's nephew. I'm supposed to show up with a wreath, and I went to go on stage, and the wreath wasn't where it was supposed to be. And from what I understand, people in the audience are, where's the wreath? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there have been many mistakes that have happened uh, since then, although I like to think I don't yell from backstage as much as I used to. Um, but in any case, mistakes are going to happen. And really, the, the measure of the professionalism and of the experience is what do you do about it in the moment? And then hopefully, what do you learn from it so that it doesn't happen again? And also, potentially, what do you learn from it that makes you better at what you do? So let's start off talking about mistakes in rehearsal. Before we do, I, I, I would like to add the disclaimer that Mistakes are what rehearsal is really about. Rehearsal is supposed to be a safe place where you can go in and try things and, and things go wrong, and specifically so you can learn from those things. But there are some sort of bigger picture, long-term mistakes that can happen. And so let's talk about some of them. What happens, what do you do when you show up to rehearsal and one of the other actors in the play is unprepared. You're supposed to have your lines memorized, they don't. You're supposed to know your staging, they don't. Whatever the example is. I think it depends on what your role is. You're talking about if I'm an actor and the other actor in my scene. Or you're a playwright, I, if, you have a, if you have a point of view as a playwright. Well, I was actually going to say as a stage manager or director, mm-hmm. it's different. I kind of feel like as an actor, it's not really about you and you shouldn't make it about you it's their it's their issue and you shouldn't make a big fuss about it it's up to the stage manager and the director to deal with it and what happens that day that's how i feel about it because i think it does feel disrespectful for if you did all the work and somebody else didn't but you shouldn't it you shouldn't take up time of rehearsal you know hashing it out how hurt you are that the other person didn't learn their lines Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, the only thing it really does as the actor, for me, is it adjusts, possibly, it adjusts sort of my goals for the day, for that, for that rehearsal. And it's just something that you become aware of, that the other actor is not going to be in the same place you are going to be. In an odd way, it, it, it sort of frees you up to, to address issues that you, know, you haven't been able to address in rehearsal thus far, because you know that whatever expectations were and, and goals were set for that rehearsal, they need to be somewhat 
adjusted as well because the other actor is not going to be prepared to meet all of those goals. So it, it's sort of an opportunity for you to possibly explore elements of the scene or your character that you might not get a chance to if the dynamic was different. I know, you know there, there's several things as the actor I like to do when I come into rehearsal sort of little mini goals I'll set for the day. And this is just an example. One of them is I like to see, once I'm off book, I like to see if I can make the scene work as tightly as possible. And I'll try to get everything done in one beat so that I can sort of figure out, A, I can get the scene as crisp as possible, but then I can also sort of see where those moments where some sort of pause or you know, an, an, an ex, an, an, any type of extended moment really is justified because you'll feel it. If you set for yourself the goal, I'm going to do everything in one beat. I'm going to do this action in one beat. I'm going to get this line out in one beat. You can really feel organically where something needs to be longer than that or you need to take your time with that. That's something I'll do if I'm off book and the other actor isn't because I know they've got the script in front of them. So I know the lines are going to be coming very crisply and that's basically what they're going to be doing for that rehearsal. They'll sort of be I don't want to say serving me, but they'll sort of be, have, at that point, they'll sort of have to serve the text because they're not going to be able to do much else. So that's one very specific exercise that when I see that, I'll use that opportunity. Yeah. I think what both of you said, I suspect, are going to become a bit of themes, especially in the, uh, in, in the section about uh, rehearsal, is to A, do your work, you know. And to B, do what you can. And uh, this is not someone I ever thought I would quote on this podcast, but there, there is something to Don Rumsfeld's quote about you go to war with the army you've got, not the army you wish you had. And I think that that is perhaps not the best way, you know, to go to war, but it's not a bad, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not a bad thing to think about when you're confronted with uh, problems like that, that you know, rather than trying to turn it into the rehearsal you had planned to have, you show up and you have the best possible rehearsal you're able to have. Mm -hmm. And from a director's point of view, one thing related to that is I just think it's so important, A, to keep that in mind, to do what you can, and B, to not punish the other actors because one actor has not showed up prepared. If, for instance, the actors are supposed to be off book and know their lines and one of them doesn't, it may feel like it's going to kick that actor in line if you say, well, put down your script and we're just going to have you call line for the next two hours. Uh, a, I'm not sure that that really is an effective way to get them to do it because you know what? They're embarrassed already that they've shown up unprepared. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it wastes the rest. Everyone else didn't show up today so that that person could have a line rehearsal. And I just think it's it's you know an important thing to keep in mind. Do it, do what you can, and you know, don't punish everyone for the shortcomings of one. What do you do? Because it does happen from time to time. Things come up in people's lives. What do you do when you are the one who has, for some reason or another, come in unprepared? I think the first thing you can do is to let somebody know as soon as you know that is an option. If if it's not until you walk in the door, okay. But if there's any way that you know this to give somebody a heads up before you walk into the rehearsal, as soon as you know that this is a possibility, let your stage manager know that this is what's going on. And then, you know, show up and apologize. And then move on. Mm -hmm. Let the director decide how the rehearsal's gonna go 
based on the information that you've given them. Don't wallow. Just do the work that you can with the preparation that you've done. But yes, you should have, you know, you should say you're sorry to the other people and mean it. You know, I, I think you have to acknowledge the reality of the situation mm -hmm. and you know, how that relates particularly to, you know, your preparation for rehearsal is, is, you know, in regards to like knowing your lines, I think, you know, to Jen's point, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's imperative to let people know immediately, listen, I'm not prepared. I'm going to need that book in hand. I'm really sorry. I'll get a book, you know, tonight as quickly as possible after this rehearsal. I don't want to hold everybody else up. But you know, I'm gonna need a whole book in hand. But there, there, there's other ways it can it can affect your rehearsal process. I've done several shows where there's a lots of stage combat, and we know walking into a certain day we're gonna do something really physical. If one of the actors shows up and is sick that day, it does not feel well. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, they need to let people know that immediately, so that the stage manager, the director, can come up with a game plan. Or injured. They, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they can go ahead with you know they sort of need to evaluate what they can get done that day or what they can't get done that day. Yeah. And, and I think that related to that is that idea of, you know, don't try to fake it. If you, mm. if you know that you're not in a, if you know you're not off book, if you know you don't know your lines, if, if you know you, that you don't know your blocking, whatever it is, um, you know, you're much better off. Again, do what you can do. Mm. You know, and, and again, it's helpful there's so much, and we've talked about it in other contexts, but that that idea of the social room uh, is so important, and that idea of really, you know, no, kind of knowing how to acknowledge things and move on. I think you're absolutely right that that's really what you need to do in that sort of a situation. You know, and it's one of those things where if your roommate was sick last night and you had to take him to the hospital, and that's why you didn't, you know... Things it, happen. Yeah, it's one of those things, do, yeah, things happen. You don't need to make a big production of it. It doesn't hurt to let people know why. I mean, people will get it if you come in and say, guys, I'm sorry, I had set aside last night to learn my lines. My roommate had food poisoning. I had to take him to the hospital. I'm going to learn my lines tonight. Everyone gets it and moves on, and that's great. Candidly, I think that's better than, uh, guys, I don't know my lines. Which is better than pretending you do and wasting everyone's time, but also you don't want to do spend the whole rehearsal talking about how you know he threw up on your carpet and you spent all night cleaning it, and the rehearsal becomes about um, you know your night last night and how terrible it was and why they shouldn't be mad at you for not knowing your lines. You know there really is that fine line, you know that that you have to strike between giving the correct and helpful information and getting down to work. Mm -hmm. Well, and like you said, with um, in terms of blocking, to fake it actually confuses... I mean, I mean, that actually happens quite a bit where people are set to know they're blocking, you know, by a certain rehearsal, and they come in and just start kind of wandering around or, or going where they think they might need to... Like, I know I move here, and they just move to the left because they know that they need to move. But then everyone else is affected because they're maybe questioning if they're supposed to be moving and it just it really slows it down then you have the director and the stage manager going no I don't think they're supposed to be there I think it's better to just say up front I don't know I know I'm supposed to move I don't know where I'm moving or to admit yeah. that it, you don't know the next step and there's a lot of times in which you show up thinking you're prepared mm -hmm. you know I mean I yeah. think everyone has had that experience of when you're at home and you're running your lines you know them 
and then you get there and they're not coming to you. You know, that I, again, it's, it's that, you know, the sometimes discretion is the better part of valor and you show up, you do your thing, but if you're realizing, you know what, I'm halfway through this and I really, I thought I knew it and I don't, I'm going to grab my book. Um, you know, I think pretty much everyone in the room would rather you grab your book than, you know, spend an hour letting you stumble through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, if that's not what the rehearsal is about. Sometimes there are stumble through. Sometimes there are times where it's guys who just got to see where we are. You know, and, and if that's what the rehearsal is, then, mm. you know, then that's what everyone's signing up for. What do you do when you, which happens from time to time, when a production loses an actor? Either an actor gets sick or injured or gets a bigger gig that they have to leave the production for or is fired from a production, which happens from time to time. Um, what do you do um, as an actor or a director or a writer to help deal with that? Well, I think, I, you know, the, the first, if you have a rehearsal where there, a body was supposed to be there and is missing, it's kind of the same thing as somebody who doesn't know the lines. You kind of have to adjust the rehearsal to what's available to you at that moment. So, like, maybe, you know, someone doesn't show up for rehearsal or something. You know, that uh, you have to adjust what the plans were for the day the same way that you adjusted for everything else. Um, when somebody is coming into a process who hasn't had all the um, rehearsals that you have, I think just do your best to be helpful. You know, offer whatever assistance you can and, and try to make the transition as smooth as possible. I think if you have an actor who comes in as a replacement for another actor, you need to support that actor, that new actor, as much as possible. A, because they've been thrown into a very, you know, uh, not scary situation. We can, it, I guess it can be a scary situation, but at least one that's going to be filled with a lot of anxiety and a lot of pressure, depending on how much time is left before performance. But, you know, also pragmatically, you know, for your own process, you want to help that person be as prepared as possible because it's only going to, to help you. When I was living in Chicago, I did a production of, of Romeo and Juliet, and at one point uh, I was playing Mercutio, and the character who, uh, the actor who was playing the character Tibble, I don't remember the specifics of it, but I had a huge falling out with the producers, and we were in the middle of a run and left the show, and we had to bring in another actor. To, and we had we were doing a show the next day, and so they had to learn all the text, they had to learn the fights, and you know it was a very young company. Uh, we were all very young, and frankly, that time I, th I don't think we handled it well. You know, when when the new actor showed up, I think all that we were able to do was express our anxiety, which <laughs> I think only made the new Tibble feel even more anxious because he has to learn the role of Tibble and all these fights in less than twenty four hours. And everyone in the company seems to be mad at him <laughs> when really, you know, we, we should have been grateful for him mm -hmm. for stepping up and, and being the guy to, to have the, the, the courage and the, 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 the wherewithal to say, yes, in 24 hours, I'm going to give you Tibble. You know, if I could go back and do that, I think I would, I would, you know, just offer that guy as much support as possible. Let's run this fight a thousand times. Let's run all your text you know, as many times as possible, so we both know it cold. That, I think, would have made him feel better. It would have made me feel better, and I think the performance would have been better, rather than spending time bemoaning why the situation wasn't ideal. 
that's not how the other guy did it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the thing, though. I think as the as another actor, I feel like being accommodating to the other actor. Yes. You may need to add rehearsal time. You may need to do this. You may need to run lines with it. You know what I mean? Being being accommodating and welcoming. And then as the character, making sure you're on your game. Making sure mm -hmm. you're doing what you need to do so that it's... Because that's what's ultimately going to be helpful to to this new character coming in. And, and that you're open to what they bring to the table. Right. right that you're right. not... That you're allowing them some room to create their own character. And so that you're actually doing your work you're supposed to do as an actor and listening and responding to what they're bringing to you instead of necessarily demanding that they give you exactly what the right. other actor right. is right. giving. Right. And it doesn't benefit um, because, you know... It, if they're struggling with what they're doing, your efforts are best put to helping them through it rather than to concentrate on yourself. Like, it doesn't, you don't look better if you look like you know what you're doing and they don't look like they know what they're doing in a scene. You both look better when, when everyone is, you know, as close together as possible. Although, I think it's actually really important for the integrity of the show and actually I think for the other actor that you don't then forfeit your experience yeah, and your rehearsal no. totally over to that person. I think you want to be sure that you are extra prepared, you know, so that you are going to need as little focus in rehearsal to get where you're going, but you still want to take the focus that you need so that for exactly the same reason that, that you were saying, so that you're at the top of your game for them. And I think that it is also really helpful, and, and going actually to what you were saying, Tim, that I th and the social room, that it's so important that when a person comes in, that you let them know that you are glad that they are there, and then you move on, because it is a scary thing. You never know when that actor steps in, because I've done it on a few occasions, where you're asked by a director, can you come in and take over this role? You don't know what happened in that room before you got mm -hmm. there. You don't know if the entire cast is furious that this person has been fired or whatever it is that happened. And if you can be set at ease at the beginning, hey, we're glad that you're here and let's get to work. Because candidly, that's what a person who just got a role that they have to do in less than standard rehearsal time wants, is, is to be able to work. And that was actually something, Jenny, the first show you and I worked on was Romeo and Juliet, that you were stage managing. And the actor playing Romeo was hospitalized three days before we opened. And it's a story I think we've probably told in, in, in other episodes, but you ended up taking over the role and were all of a sudden playing the role as a woman. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, something that I appreciated enormously as the director, and I imagine made it much easier for you as an actor, is we called the cast together said, guys, this actor is sick, he's not going to be back, Jenny is taking over the role, and Romeo is now a woman, and all of them were like, all right, great, thanks, Jenny, let's go. Yeah. And they got up and they went. And yeah. I, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I, I've always really been a little bit in awe of that group of people that they just took that so well and went. And I don't know yeah. how it affected your experience, Jenny. Well, it was so interesting because everyone was so like, okay, that's awesome. Let's, let's not, that's awesome that he left, but... I'm glad you're taking, you know, I'm glad we have a plan. Let's move forward. And really, everyone kind of stepped up. I mean, we did. I mean, it was like three, three, four days right before the performance. And we did have to add rehearsal time. And people, 
like outside of rehearsal were volunteering to go over lines with me or to meet me. I, I remember the guy playing Friar Lawrence met with me before rehearsal and did the balcony scene with me. <laughs> like just people were on their game and were really, really there to, to help. And, and during rehearsal time were doing their thing and it was helpful for me to have them on their game. And I think it's also really helpful that idea of, of being aware as the director and as the actor and as the stage manager of having the focus of where the help is needed for this new person. Because the thing is, if it's an actor who's coming in, which presumably it is, they have a process and they're used to rehearsing like rehearsal. That if the entire process becomes strictly about them, that is actually a weird place to work as an actor. It's really uncomfortable, actually. Yeah. And and I, I it's something that's not quite the same, uh, but it's... Uh, it spoke to me of something you actually, Jenny and Jen, I think you were both a part of. But a couple of years ago, I was working on um, the uh, shooting the the Broadway production of Company for for PBS. And one of the things that we needed to do was we had a camera blocking rehearsal where we had much of the cast come and walk through parts of the show so that the cameras could practice shooting them. But not all of the actors could make it. And so we had a few people, including I think both of you guys did it, came in and stood in for people in these incredibly complicated musical numbers. But what was kind of amazing is that you almost couldn't tell you didn't belong in it. But nobody taught you the choreography. What they said is, someone said, Jenny, follow me. Mm -hmm. And will tell you what to do. And so you were following them and all of a sudden somebody came up to you and said, okay, now follow me. And you changed mm -hmm. and went with them. And then they said, when we get to the corner, you take a left and I'll take a right. And just sort of, and it was amazing how much when it's a cast of 15 people, five of them were not actually part of the cast. You were still doing the choreography, right? But not because someone was saying, put your left foot forward, put your right foot forward, put your left foot forward, put your right foot forward, but because People were aware of, this is the moment where you're going to need some extra help. The rest of it, I'm going to leave you on your own to let you do your thing. And I just think, in any of these situations in rehearsal, it's a nice sort of object lesson of, you know, let people do their thing and, and be aware of when they're going to need your help. Give it to them then, and then give them their space. Mm -hmm. Certainly losing an actor actually falls under this next category, but there are all sorts of other things, too. There are situations that can happen that can cause you to lose time in rehearsal where, you know, there's a natural disaster certainly will do it. But also if someone gets sick and are not able to make some rehearsals or there's a pipe bursts in the rehearsal studio and you don't have it anymore. Or, or the studio is overbooked or double booked. Or yeah. Any number of different things that can happen uh, where you realize that you're losing time. What do you do to adjust on the fly to deal with those sorts of things? Well, I think this is a, a point in the rehearsal where having a really on-the-ball stage manager is essential because usually they will have a backup plan of if, if you lose your space, if you, you know, if you have to adjust your evening plans, like that they usually have an idea of another space you can go to or you know how to how to go about that and then they set about implementing that and you really have to look to your stage manager and do what they need you to do in that 
moment. If it's, you know, something that can, there's a fire alarm going off and you have to exit the building, like, please pay attention to the person who's in charge of you, which is your stage manager, and, and, and do what you can to let them help you. And then, you know, get back into it as quickly as you can. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, it's fun to, you know, spend 45 minutes talking about what just happened, but you can do that after. Like, try to get back to work as quickly as you can. And, and, and obviously there are situations where you need a little de decompressing time. They probably will work that in for you. You know, a 15-minute break right before you start up again so that you can just kind of, like, let it go and get going again. But um, it, it's the best to get right back on the horse and go. And I think related to that, especially if you're talking about something that isn't necessarily a one-time event, but there can be something where, you know, you realize for whatever reason, we thought we were going to have the room until 6 o'clock every day this week. Turns out we have to leave at 3, which means we're going to lose 15 hours of rehearsal over this week, yeah. for instance. Just to adjust your expectations a little bit, you know, to realize you need to do the same amount of work in a shorter amount of time. What kind of different and extra preparation do you need to do? And also, you know, rehearsal, the rehearsal hall in a good process, I think, is a very enjoyable place to be. It's not a place where people are hopefully screwing around a lot, but where you know people stop and they talk about things and they you know there's a bit of air in the room. And sometimes when you realize, all right, you know, we've lost 15 hours of rehearsal space this week, you just need to adjust this, the expectation that part of that is going to be we need to be a bit more focused this week. And I don't think that there necessarily is need to panic about losing time like that if you realize that there is time that I think is very valuable time spent in a rehearsal room, but that is about having some air and breathing room that is not strictly necessary for you to get your job done. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually think that idea of not panicking about it is, is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Because the more time you spent wound up about the fact that something is going wrong, the less time you're going to spend solving the fact that something has gone wrong. Sometimes aside from a disaster or, you know, a production mess up or, you know, whatever can lose you rehearsal time, there can be things that are expected to be a part of rehearsal that are suddenly unavailable. Uh, for example, if it's supposed to be a tech rehearsal and you are supposed to be able to rehearse in the actual space and the space isn't ready for you to come into, they're still hanging a light or building a set, you know, something's gone wrong with the wiring and they can't have you in that room anymore and one, you have to find a space to be in and you have to have a different rehearsal than you were planning on. It's not going to be a technical rehearsal, it's going to be a continuation of whatever process you are and I think be thankful for the extra time to that is not technical but also be prepared that as soon as it's this what you were saying about the air that as soon as that element does come back into play you you go and you get what you can out of the time that's still available for that and then, you know if there's like if, if actors get pulled out for costume stuff I mean hopefully that's pre-planned or whatever but things come up like you know, things get delayed and suddenly this element needs to be put into play and so you have to adjust to that person not being in the space with you. And yeah, and I mean, with that in mind too, there are certain things, especially with technical elements, that you are expecting to rehearse with the mechanical bull, say. Right. <laughs> um, you know, at 3 o'clock, you find out they're having trouble getting it working, you're probably not going to get it until 4. Um, again, about adjusting the expectations that 
there are things probably about the mechanical bull that you can talk about ahead of time. You know, if you as an actor know, I had these questions about it. You know what? So we don't spend now the only one hour we have with the mechanical bull instead of two hours talking about a question I know I already have. Right. We can address those things yeah, now. And, and a director can, re and a, you know, in conjunction with the designers and the stage managers, pre-rehearse in a way elements that are that you can't actually touch yet, you know, t tell you about the costume, tell you about this moment, so that it's like, you know, your strategy meeting before you actually get in the place, so that when you actually get in the space, it's not about, um, oh, I didn't realize this or that or whatever. It's that if, if you can prepare your actors, if even if they can't actually try it for themselves, that saves time too. And again, it's the, the idea that things are going to go wrong. And it's yet another reason, and it, 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 it's something I've, I've said a number of times before, I'm sure, about the importance of a director to gain the trust of their actors. And ultimately, you know, for actors in these situations to trust their director, when something goes wrong, someone is going to have to make a call. And I think once the call is made, everyone needs to support it rather than spending time second-guessing the call or certainly spending time demonstrating the fact that they didn't agree with the call if they're not going to have another <laughs> suggestion. And, uh, and I mean, I know there are times where you have to make really difficult calls. There was, actually it feels like maybe uh, Romeo and Juliet is a bad luck Shakespeare show instead of uh, uh, Macbeth's, but uh, with what we were talking about with that production uh, we did before, but we actually did another production later of Romeo and Juliet because we put Jenny in at the last minute of another production uh, where it was suddenly Romeo as a woman who decided to do it later but on purpose and uh, and Jenny played Romeo again, but we were 10 days before we opened and the actress who played Juliet came in and wrote me a note that said she had what they thought were vocal nodes and she was put on total vocal rest for the next eight days. Which means she could not speak for the next eight days and we opened in ten days. And, you know, there was a call to be made about what to do. And our uh, associate, my associate director had played Juliet before. There was obviously the discussion of do we put her in instead. But, you know, Jane, who was playing Juliet, was on board with this from the beginning. She was one of the main reasons that we had wanted to do the production when we were doing it. And what we ended up doing was Jane didn't talk for the next eight days. But, and this astonishes me and is absolutely true, Jen, who was the associate director, knew sign language. And Jane went home and learned sign language that night. Mm. I am not kidding. No. She literally went home and learned sign language that night. I have no idea how she did it. And so how we rehearsed for the next eight days was Jane would go through her blocking and movement and Jen would speak for her from off from the edge of the stage. And the two of them developed this symbiosis that was crazy, where you'd see Jane sort of giving her signals to slow down or speed up. or And basically, the two of them acted together. And then when Jane had questions, she would sign them to Jen, who would then relay them to me. 
And that's how we rehearsed for eight days. And again, what happened was we called everyone together, said, this is what we're going to do. And they all said, okay. And it worked out. And actually, candidly, what was amazing is once she was able to speak again, the fact that she hadn't been able to for eight days and all of the things that she had wanted to be able to say out loud, her performance was, 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 was pretty amazing. And I think it was in, in part, it was in large part because she's a terrific actor, but also in part because of that experience. But it's one of those things, if we had spent the week hemming and hawing about whether that was the right call or not, once the decision was made, everyone just fell in, Jane went home and learned sign language, and, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, that's, you know, it's, it's just important to support the call that's made, I think. And for directors, because there are going to be times where you need to make a call like that, it's so important that you treat your people well and you show them that you care about them and you care about the production and you're prepared so that it's not a stunt that you decide to let this person who can't speak keep going. Um, you know, I, I like to think that part of the reason that that went well is because people at that point thought that I wasn't going to do that if I didn't think it was, if I, if I didn't really believe it was going to work out. Mm -hmm. Before we move on from the rehearsal issue, just one other thought as a director, and it's something that's such a tricky thing to manage sometimes, that sometimes things go wrong that not everyone knows about. Mm. And it is just one of the real social skills a director needs to have is to really be able to determine what it is you need to share and what it is that you don't. And I think generally it is better if it is at one extreme or the other. I mean, if it's something nobody needs to know, it's better that nobody know. It's better that you don't call over your best friend in the cast and tell them, oh, you know what, so-and-so's, you know, father is in the hospital and that's why she's not going to be, might not going to be at rehearsal tonight, but she might not be here for the whole week. Well, you know, if, if you've decided I'm not, we're not going to panic the cast by letting them know that this person might not be back for a whole week, but we're going to give them a day or two to figure it out, then you keep that to yourself. If it's something, though, where you decide this is something people need to know, then you need to tell everyone, you need to give everyone the same information, and you need to get, it, disclose as much information as they need to get what they need to get done mm -hmm. done. Yeah. And not make them feel like they're in the dark. Mm -hmm. So that's rehearsal. Let's talk a bit about performance, which usually I think might have some sometimes is some of the wilder stories and are certainly much more often an acute situation mm -hmm. uh, where it's not about how are we going to deal with this problem over the next two weeks but you are standing there mm -hmm. under the lights with 300 people in the audience and you realize that the gun isn't in the drawer where it's supposed to be right before you're supposed to shoot the person. Um, <laughs> So let's let's. <laughs> well, those things happen. Uh, so let's talk first a bit about um, you know technical problems that can happen with sets, lights, props, costumes. What kind of things can happen, and and what do you do about it? Well, I saw this production. I think I was doing props for it, and it was a production of "Lend Me a Tenor," which is this big farce. It's the set is usually two hotel rooms and then there's a hallway that connects them that's kind of back of the set and then there's a door between the two rooms and 
the the whole thing is like who's in what room, who's in the closet, who's in the hallway. And so it's this comedy based on who is where in the set. And on like the third night, the door between the two rooms jammed. And so, but as people realized it, because people didn't know that the door was jammed, so they would come on expecting to go from one room to another and try the door and it didn't work slam the door a little bit, still didn't work, like, but what, and it, so it was like you watch like six actors in a row have the same issue, which is they couldn't go through the door they were supposed to go through, and they knew for story reasons that they couldn't go through the hallway to get to the other room, and each of them deciding, I have to go through the hallway, essentially, you know, that that was the only way to continue the play, even if it made no sense, because the other option was to walk like around the, the wall that divided, you know, towards the audience and, and go into the other room. And then, you know, you could hear in the blackout, the, the, um, the, the, back, the stage manager backstage, like, body slamming the door trying to get it open. But, that you know, it had, didn't get opened until, like, intermission. But I think an important lesson of that is I was at that performance. I didn't know anything was wrong. Mm -hmm. I thought it was odd <laughs> that they kept going out in the hallway. But honestly, to me, it was the funniest part of the show. <laughs> um, I didn't know that, that that was going on. There actually was very connected acting going on in those moments because it was really somebody really making decisions in real time and trying to solve a problem. But I think it's such an important thing to remember when you are on stage that the audience doesn't know how it's supposed to go. Right. Mm -hmm. Your job is to get to the next beat, not to get this one right if there's a technical problem that is going to prevent mm -hmm. you from getting this one right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And definitely, like, the, the audience doesn't know the show. It's, it's, it's such an important thing. Like, they may never notice that the, the key element for the story wasn't there. They, I mean, they may sense something is a little off, but they don't know for sure. So you shouldn't say... You shouldn't telegraph with the way that you're handling an issue. Oh, I have a big problem as an actor. Mm -hmm. Don't judge me. <laughs> you know, you should just continue. Like you said, get to the next beat. Well, anything, you know, the, the, it's, it's sort of the same thing we were talking about earlier in that you need to acknowledge the reality of the situation. You can do that as the character, as the actor, if that makes sense. I did a production of, of in rep of uh, uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet and Lee Blessing's Fortinbras. And I played Hamlet in both plays, which was really neat. But in Fortinbras, Hamlet is initially trapped in a television set. And so we had, it was an incredibly, you know, ornate uh, technical rehearsal and sort of a technical setup of having me as the character off stage being videotaped that could be transmitted through this television set that needed to be uh, on stage that the audience could see. And there was a night where, for whatever reason, they couldn't get the television set to work midway through. And <laughs> so the actors were left on stage trying to communicate with me, still being able to hear me, but not being able to see me. And me being off stage, being able to hear them, obviously, and feeling like and I can't see them anyway, mm -hmm. um, but then also not realizing that they couldn't see me. And to your point, Kit, you know, the audience doesn't know what's going on. 
in terms of what is supposed to happen, the way the script is supposed to happen. They're just aware of what the actors are dealing with. And I think had the actors thrown up their hands and said, this is not the way this play is supposed to go, and had you know demonstrated an expression of frustration that the play wasn't happening, the story wasn't happening the way it was supposed to be told, you know, then the audience would know and I think their experience would be reduced. But you know, they dealt with the reality of the situation, which was they were seeing me and talking to me through a television set and then all of a sudden they could only hear me and couldn't see me. And that became the reality for that particular performance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember we a few years ago did uh, Macbeth and there was one performance where it was Seton and a bunch of it was when the murderers show up to kill Macduff's family. And Seton was one of the murderers in, in this production. And uh, people had guns. And there was one point where he's supposed to, he pushes the young boy down, takes out his gun and shoots him. And there was one night he took out his gun and click, 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 for whatever reason it wasn't going off. And to this 10-year-old boy's great credit, the boy who was playing Macduff's son... He didn't die. That gun didn't go off and he didn't die. And he tried to get away. <laughs> and what ended up happening, and I'm honestly still conflicted about how I feel about this, because they did it safely, but, it, but it's what they did, was that the guy playing Seton grabbed the kid and held him down. They got each other's eye and he pulled the gun back I saw the kid see what he was going to do, and he came and he banged the gun down on the ground next to the kid's head, and the kid then died as though he, you know, skull-cracked him with the butt of his gun. And that just, though, speaks to that idea of when you are on stage and recognizing the story reality of what is going on, which is the story reality is the gun didn't go off, so that kid's not going to die. The additional reality is you are two actors who need to solve a problem together. Yeah. And, you know, that that gets into that idea. One, um, that it was good. They went to each other. They looked in each other's eye. He didn't just swing wildly at him. He made sure that the kid saw what he was going to do. And I don't think Carl was going to bring that gun down unless he saw that kid yes. look at him and, and, and saw that he knew what he was going to do. But also that idea that's similar to what we were talking about in rehearsal is once somebody has made a call about how to solve it... Everybody's got to be on board. Yeah. Go with them. Yeah. You know, if, if somebody's made a call, it doesn't help <laughs> to crack the kid on the head and then one of the other guys to come over whose gun does work and shoot him again. <laughs> you know, that said, if one of the other actors whose gun had worked and saw what was going on and came over... And again, not just shot wildly, but made sure to come over, stand over the kid, look at Seton and be like, don't worry, I'll get him. Hopefully with his eyes instead of his words. <laughs> Shakespeare. And that would have worked too. But that idea of once somebody has decided what to do, do it. And importantly, once the problem is solved, quote unquote, even if it's not an ideal solution, move on. Mm -hmm. Don't let the rest of the play be about the fact that the gun didn't go off. You know, of all the props that actors will deal with, guns are... <sighs> guns. Um, I have so many gun stories. They're um, so binary. Well, they work or they don't. Well, 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 well here, here's a technical thing that, I, that I've discovered with, with guns and in all the plays that I've, I've, I've worked on or seen where guns are involved, which is 
for some reason, guns that need to actually fire, to need to actually explode, for some reason, most guns, the more you do what's called dry fire, which is where you just pull the trigger, it seems to really jam the gun up. Mm -hmm. um, so, as an actor, my my specific relationship with guns is, you know, regardless of my character, is that it's, it's literally a bomb that can go off in your hand. And A, as an actor, as a storytelling device, I think that's a cool thing to to hold on to it, it immediately invests danger in a scene that it's it's not this cool thing you get a wave around and be macho about. That may be part of it, but I think you acknowledge that it's a bomb that can go off. As the actor, my experience with guns is I'm constantly looking at this thing, praying that it's going to do what it needs to do. And my very, very first year that I was an, uh, an actor, I was lucky enough, I was an apprentice at the Berkshire Theatre Festival. And I don't remember the specific play, but I remember seeing the, the play that the professional actors were working on that year. It was some sort of 18th century piece where he, one of the actors needed to pull out a musket and shoot a woman in the play. And that thing only went off about 50% of the time. And there was really no way to get, I felt, I felt for everyone. Um, I felt for the actors on stage, and I remember one specific performance I had seen. I saw the play several times, and the lore was was that the the gun only went off 50% of the time, and the actors every night had to deal with what was going to happen. And the night that I saw it, you know, the the woman went down anyway. She died anyway. She fainted. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and, and the actors came off stage every night furious because they were trapped in this situation of what, you know, really, what do you do? You know, that in order for the play to move forward, she needed to die. There wasn't a second musket. And they were really put in, in an intractable situation. I felt really bad for them. My, my favorite situation involving guns ever was my last show in Chicago. I was lucky enough to do the, apparently, the only Quentin Tarantino authorized stage adaptation of Reservoir Dogs. And so, of course, there were guns galore in that. And I played the the cop who is kidnapped and, and, and tortured and has his ear cut off and is ultimately shot. And I hope I'm not ruining the, <laughs> the film for anyone. Um, but, uh, you know, because those guns were, were fired and dry fired as a result of rehearsal and, and in some cases the actors just playing with them too much, they were dry fired all the time. And there was the point in the, uh, the play where the character Eddie needs to shoot me. And... His gun would only go off about 50% of the times. And this actor, uh, his name is Michael, he's a wonderful, wonderful actor. Uh, it's a completely different type of character than, than the Chris Penn uh, character in, in, in the film, but made it work and made it his own. But I remember one night specifically, he went to point the gun at me and shoot me, and the gun did not go off. And there's not a lot I can do to help him. I'm handcuffed to a chair with my ear cut off, and I have... Uh, uh, you know, uh, duct tape over my mouth. There's not a lot of help I can give the guy. And what he would normally do was, if he couldn't get his gun to fire, he would pull a gun from Mr. White and shoot me. And this became a growing theme of how frustrated we were with the guns, and it became a part of the show that was also organic. It added to the anxiety and the tension. I mean, the, the, the story is basically about a botched bank job, so frankly, it was one more mm -hmm. botched thing that added to the tension of it. But I remember one night... He pulled the trigger, and the gun didn't go off, and he pulled Mr. White's gun, and the, his gun didn't go off, and he turned open to the audience, to the other actors, to everyone, holding both guns up in the air, and I remember this, and he just goes, 
is there a fucking gun in this entire operation that's gonna work? And in an odd way, it worked because it acknowledged the reality of the situation without stepping outside of, of I mean, it stepped outside of the, the given text, obviously, but it didn't step outside of the world of the play, which is this whole operation, nothing is going right. And then he sat there and acted to reload the gun, cursing, <laughs> looking at me the entire time, and both of us not knowing if the gun was going to go off that time, and unfortunately it did, and he shot me. And I think he said something to the effect of, there, and threw the gun <laughs> back to the other actor. I think a lot of mistakes that happen in performance have to do with props. And hopefully you've got a prop person who's like giving you items that will function all the time and, you know, that work well for the story and, you know, don't fall apart or whatever. They've done their best for you, you hope. And then, but you you have to use them in the play as as you can for the story. The only exception, I would say, is with prop weapons. You can't just alter with impunity what you're doing with a gun or a blade on stage. You can't treat it in a different way than the, you know, fight choreographer has. You have to be so careful because they are dangerous, even if they are stage safe. Things, things still can happen. So yes, you have to acknowledge what's going on, but hopefully this is, you know, as you said, like 50% of the time they didn't work. They know that that's a possibility. They should give you options. Like, what do I do if the gun doesn't go off? What do I do if my blade falls apart? What do I do? Like, have, have, have backups about what, how do you tell the story of the violence without endangering someone around you? That actually, that, that blade story actually happened to me once. I was in the middle of a sword fight on stage. I was the one who was supposed to win, and we struck blades, and literally it fell apart in my hand, like into like 15 constituent parts. So I was sitting there holding the pommel, and the rest of it is on the ground. Yeah, how did you win? <laughs> well, it, how did I win? Did you shoot him? <laughs> no. Did you strangle him? Didn't the other actor give you his sword? No, it was. I got the, the sword from him. But actually, that was one of those things that literally I remember in that moment. The sword fell apart in my hand. And I looked up at the other actor. And I remember thinking, okay, we can solve this. And I look up, get him in the eye, and he goes under his breath. Oh, shit, what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, I'm on my own. <laughs> But what you were just saying, Jen, though, is, I think, very important, which is whenever you have a something, uh, a prop, a set, a whatever, that could go wrong, there should be a backup plan. Yeah. I mean, there is anything could go wrong, but if there's something that has a higher probability than other things to go wrong, it's good to say, and especially at this point, especially after that experience on Macbeth, every time there's a gun. I always make sure that there's something safe in the room the person could stab them with or something uh, to be sure there's a backup plan if it doesn't go off. But it's, it's important. Um, and it's important as a director to be sure you've got one. But as an actor, if the director isn't offering a backup plan, you should ask for one. Yeah. It's actually interesting because I think there's the whole gun dilemma, which I feel like is a big technical... Wow. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I also feel like um, in theater, phone rings are, can also be a huge issue, a huge technical issue. And as I've never had to deal with it as an actor where something didn't go right with a phone ring, but I've been uh, a stage manager a number of times where you're in charge of making the sound go. Mm -hmm. um, and it's always difficult because it's always a huge timing issue with as soon as the actor picks up that phone, that phone needs to stop ringing or <laughs> the phone needs to start ringing in the first place. And it's actually funny because I feel like that's one of the most common mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. prop sound related mm -hmm. uh, things that can go wrong. And it's hard because it, what do you do if the phone doesn't ring? I mean, I actually feel like nowadays where people are using cell phones, it's actually easier because the cell phone could be on vibrate or something and you just know that the phone is ringing. Uh -huh. and, and in the case of if you've picked up the phone and the phone keeps ringing, just keep, just go. Don't, don't make a <laughs> funny face at the audience and like point at the stage manager. And <laughs> just well, I be think, on your game and keep going. And I think that speaks to something though that's really important, which is to solve that which you can solve but not to try to solve the things you can't. Yeah. Um, you know, because sometimes things will go wrong and you're in a position to do something about it. Sometimes things will go wrong and you're the only person in a position to do something about it. But sometimes if you come in and the wrong lighting cue comes up, and so where you're standing is dark... Don't stand in the dark spot. I mean, <laughs> walk to the light, but then do the scene. I mean, mm -hmm. you don't have to pretend you're in a cave. I mean, you, <laughs> yeah. you know, hopefully they're going to fix the lighting cue, and, and you're going to move on. And again, the people in the audience understand, A, they oftentimes are not going to notice that it's a mistake. Mm -hmm. There have been times where I have, you know, after something has gone wrong in a show, talked to people in the audience, like, I can't believe this happened. Like, oh, what? I, I, didn't, I had no yeah. idea. Yeah. But two, they also understand they're at a show. Yeah. They understand they're at a show. The wrong lighting cue comes up, and then a minute later, the lights change. And they go, oh, I guess we were in the wrong lighting cue. No wonder it was so dark. And they move on. Yeah. Yeah. If you, as the actor and the character, are unable to move on from that, it makes it much harder for the audience to move mm -hmm. on from it, too. Right. Well, I think what the, the essential part of that is the actor needs to know the world of the play and know how to tell the story effectively so they can make real-time quick evaluations about what's important and essential to get the story told and what's not. One of the mistakes in performance that I always remember was from the same uh, production of Hamlet. Uh, and This involves costume. It was the, the scene for the play within the play and we had a big thing where you know all the court, court was going to come see the play and then Gertrude and and Claudius would come down after Polonius has announced them. And so the court comes, and Polonius comes, and I think his line is something effective, they are coming, my lord. And neither Claudius nor Gertrude show up. And <laughs> I, I, I sort of looked at Polonius, and, and he repeated the line. He sort of said, they are coming, my lord. <laughs> and so I went into a, a pantomime for about 90 seconds of... I sat in Claudius's chair. I did, you know, there's references to him being a big drunkard. So I made a, you know, a, a big show of him drinking and, and stumbling around. And all the court was laughing nervously and terrified because they all know what was going on. At least I gave them a, a focus for the moment. After 90 seconds of, of doing that, I sort of run out of steam and I sort of threw my hands up to, to Polonius. Sort of the effect of, you know, where are they? I'm going to the next soliloquy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Polonius comes, you know, finally they, they, 
they get them both out there, uh, Gertrude and Claudius, and I came backstage later um, to talk to them, and I said, well, what happened? And, and Claudius goes, ask her. And I asked, so I, I turned to Gertrude, I said, well, what happened? And she's like, well, I couldn't find my crown. She wasn't going to go on stage without her crown because she was the queen. And I get why that would be important for her, you know, as the queen to show up to a ceremony, to an event with your crown. My argument was, well, you know, we're in act act three scene, whatever at this point. If it's not if it's not clearly established that you're the queen, we have a problem. And you know and we have much bigger problems. Um so, you know, in 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 terms of that, it you know, I think if she were able to go back, she would identify me getting on stage with the play so the story can continue is much more important than me having the crown so that I can establish yet again that I'm, I'm the queen. Again, in those moments, you're absolutely, it's important, to, it's important to have the priorities yeah. of what's important versus what is perfect. Yeah. Because um, yeah. especially, yeah, it's, you know, be yeah, on stage perfect. or have your crown. Yeah. There, there, yeah. there are priorities. If there was a moment in the scene where the crown was used for something, that you, then you start to evaluate. But it yeah. really was addressing not an essential item. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a, another story I have about someone not showing up, and it was actually not a show that I was in. I'd done some periphery work on it, but it was like a family theater production of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's one of those things where it's like there's like 300 people in the cast, and it's all, you know, it's one of those things. And that, you know, there are two different casts, so everyone gets a part. And... I was there one night, and the curtain comes up, and it's the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and it's Edmund comes to see the White Queen. And so the curtain comes up, and the Snow Queen is sitting there, and nothing happens, and nothing happens, and nothing happens. And then the kid who played Edmund in the other cast was sitting in the audience, stood up, ran up on stage, and did the scene with her. <laughs> wow. In street clothes. And I actually feel like there is something to that and the story from Macbeth with the 10-year-old who wouldn't die. Right. That Kids just... Well, but there is something to that experience. Do your thing, man. Yeah. When there's a problem, don't sit there and look panicky about it. Yeah. You know, something is wrong. Something needs to be done. Do it. I think there is there is this thing that you have to get over. At, you know, as you're starting out, as you're learning, you know, your craft or whatever, that, that there's this anxiety about what the audience knows. And if, if I step out of this text, if I step out of my blocking, if I react in any way to that piece of set that just fell down in front of my face, they're good, like, that's breaking character or something. You know, you have to be real. Like, you have to notice have to that the, the wall just fell yeah. down. You can't go on with the show as if it didn't. That's not, that's not what you need to do. And I think kids will know, like, more instinctively, oh, what's next? Right. Like, and you, you, you know, I think that you, you kind of lose that as you get uh, more uh, more mature. And then I think you have to kind of, like, reclaim that of, like, okay. We're that sense going. of play. Of, yeah. Of... Well, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. Well, no, I, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, I air quote, mistake that happens all the time is people brush by like a prop on a desk and it falls over the pencils yeah pencils fall over or, you know a glass spills full of water and it's so funny because you it, the, i mean i feel like a person who's really in the moment or whatever you 
pick up the pencil. You put it back on, you know what I mean? Like, depending on what your action is. I and, mean, you, it, and you invest in it, the reality of the circumstance of that what a it pencil is. Has of, fallen. Oh, a pencil fell down. Yeah, as opposed yeah. to, oh my God, the pencil just fell. I need to get this back well, over here now. Or, or the <laughs> other extreme, which is totally ignore right. the fact that right. something happened. You know what I mean? Probably my most embarrassing moment ever, maybe in my life, <laughs> was doing a production of Romeo and Juliet where I was playing Mercutio. And uh, it was a very Elizabethan production uh, and staging where we were in, you know, tights and, you know, we had broadswords and, and things like that. And uh, so all the guys, we would wear like dark bike shorts and then like three or four pairs of dark pantyhose. And there was one day for a matinee that was specifically for high school kids. They were busing in 500 kids uh, in Chicago to come see this performance. And I get to the theater and I open up my, uh, my, my gear and I realize I didn't bring a pair of bike shorts with me. And I didn't really have anything to wear underneath the tights. I'm like, well, you know, they're dark and it's three, three pairs of tights. I'll be fine. So I put on the tights without anything underneath. And so I've course in a show where I'm leaping and jumping and running up and down the aisles and have all these fights. Of course, when it comes to Mercutio's big death scene, I don't remember how or what happened. I split not one pair, but all three pairs of tights. And so I'm doing Mercutio's death scene with my pants split wide open. And so, you know... <laughs> <laughs> all of my unmentionables are just <laughs> completely out are just completely out there for 500 kids who are just you know screaming in both horror and just absolute laughter and it, I, I tell you what it was probably the, the most locked in uh, uh, I've ever been for that death scene because the, the guy playing Romeo had just complete compassion for me and so we're holding on to each other our eyes are locked because we know if we go anywhere else you know, it was, it was just an awful place to be. <laughs> so we, we finished the scene, and I remember we did a talk back afterwards, and, and you know, and the, the kids, you know, a kid finally asked me, why didn't you just get up and leave? You know, and, and the response is, well, I was dying, you know? And in, in the world of the play, you know, the fact that I was dying from a stab wound just trumped, you know, my embarrassment <laughs> as a human being that, you know... <laughs> you were my, laughing at that my, that, Yeah, that my... <laughs> My privates were on display for the entire entire Chicago public school system to view. Good thing you moved. <laughs> I think that's why I did. What do you do when, which is something that happens from time to time, when you go up on your lines? Mm, sorry. That when you're out there, well, I think it's probably happened to everybody at some time, where you're out there and you don't know what you're supposed to say next. What do you do? I think if you're clear on what your action is and what story needs to be told, you can, and it's, it's terrible to do because you want to tell the, it's not terrible to do, but it, it's necessary in that particular performance to leave the text of the play and deal with the reality of that situation and find your way back in. I think if you're, as the actor, I think if you're clear on what your action is, what your obstacle is, what the worldview is, what you want from the other actor, you'll find your way very quickly back into 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 the into the real text of the play. I think you need to play the reality of that situation. As someone who has both gone up on lines, 
Um, and, and this is something that's interesting is I, I feel like there's times when you go up on lines because you, you literally don't remember in that moment. You sometimes, it's an odd thing where you go up on lines because you get so invested in that moment that you actually forget the next thing you're supposed to say. You're very clear on what's going on, what you're doing, but for some reason that one sentence that gets you from point A to point C, point B has just slipped you for the moment. Mm -hmm. I think as long as you deal with the action of that, you, you will get to the next moment and you will get there and, and be able to find the play uh, again and find the text of the, uh, of the play again. What is never helpful is when the other, the other actor sort of coaches you. Because you know, I then have to deal with that reality. You know, as someone who's lost their line, I've had another actor go, weren't you going to ask me? And, I'm like, yeah. and my response to that always was, no. <laughs> no, I wasn't. Because I'm now forced to deal with a, with, with a new reality. And I think if you deal with the reality of the world, you'll find your way back in. Well, I think that's, that's really important. And one thing just to say straight up, it is your job as the actor to know the words and say the ones that were written down. Yes. That said, <laughs> on the occasion where something does go wrong and you don't remember. It is, I think, as, as you were saying, Tim, that I think most people feel the obligation is, well, what is the next words from the play that I remember? And I'll go to that. Because, because they happen to be words in the play that they, it must therefore be the, be the best thing to do other than the next line. But I think that, that the important thing is, and speaking again as a playwright, the lines I write are important. I write them for a reason. But really it's the story that I'm writing that is most important. And I think that's, that's true that your obligation in that moment is to tell the story. So, so if you speak to your need in that moment, you'll find your way back to the text. Mm -hmm. And I think it's much more important that you are there and you tell the story rather than you're there and you say some other line from the play. Mm -hmm. Again, that does not mean, that's not to give license to actors to just improv what they feel is right in the moment. But if you need to find your way back, that's the way to do it. And what do you do if the other actor is the one who's gone up? Well, you, you, you sort of juggle two balls at the same time at that point, whereas the character, I need to deal with the reality of what I'm being given. As the actor, I know we've gone off the rails a little bit, and I need to figure out a way to get us back on the rails without betraying the character worldview. I did a play a couple uh, years ago called The Fallen, and... We, the it was basically me and another actor for 90% of the play and I'd never worked with the actor before and we had done a lot of uh, improvisation work leading up to the production and I don't know what uh, his particular issues were uh, from what I understand he was having a, a tough time personally but uh, we got into performance and he just decided he was going to continue to improv uh, and it, it was crazy because we left, you know, we, we were dealing with the reality of the moment, but we left all storytelling. And uh, the, the play is about a fireman and an accountant who are actually trapped in the rubble during 9-11. And me trying to, to rescue him and sort of the conversation we have over, you know, while we're desperately trying to get him out of this rubble. And, you know, the... We just, we dealt with the reality of the situation as we were giving it to each other, but we left all, all arc of the story, and it left us, the, the first night it happened, it left us in a completely different place where uh, emotionally, in the way the story is supposed to go, I'm supposed to save him, and, and, and he becomes someone I care about, and what he's going to do 
after he gets out of here becomes very important to me. With the way that improv in performance went, we were adversaries. Um, probably partly because I had the awareness the entire time of, boy, you're really not going to do this play. And mm -hmm. it, changed, it changed the story of the play. We had a big meeting after that first, that first night. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's hard because, but at the same time, it's sort of, it's the, uh, the, 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 the sort of nuclear-powered version of what the actor's job is mm -hmm. um, in that you have your character goal, you have your actor goal. And in, in those moments where the other actor goes up online, it's your job to deal with the reality of the world and at the same time get back on track of the actual script. And I think, I, I, I think it's helpful to, to think about being sure to keep the play moving forward. Because I think you want to help, you know, get back to the script and help the other actor get back to the script. You know, and it's going to, depending on the circumstances, kind of no golden rule of how to do it. You've got to, got to make the call in the moment. But it's helpful if you're trying to get them to the next beat. Yeah. Rather than try to get him back to the line he can't remember right now. Absolutely. Because especially the person who can't remember the line, as much as you want to think you, that person is panicking, and it is their person is the person they're talking to who, even though it's an it's an anxious moment for them, they are actually the one in the better position to keep to keep a level head. So if you can figure out a way to get them to where you're going next, rather than to get them to remember the thing they can't right now, mm -hmm. it just it helps to move things forward and it, it helps to lower the anxiety. And it also is an easier thing to do because seriously, how do you drop hints to make the person remember their line? Yeah. You don't. You, you know, you can give them a cue for a line that's coming four lines from now that it feels like it makes sense to give them the cue now so that they'll, you know. Mm -hmm. But that actually brings up, what do you do, because it certainly happens from time to time, if you realize we just jumped a section of this play? We just skip two pages of the text. What do you do? I think it depends on the pages. I mean, it's it's hard to make that judgment in the moment, I think, but sometimes, like, the rest of the play won't make any sense if a moment that you've skipped doesn't happen, if a piece of information is left out. it, And you have to make a judgment call. It's hard to do whether you need to go back or not or whether it'll be worse if you do. I feel like you kind of can never go back because especially if you skip because the problem is you're going to go back and then you're going to hit the place where you right. jump to. Right. Um, but yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that's it's tough because you do have to in that moment assess what is, is there missing? information, not is there lines that yeah, we should have, not the is there information words, but... that we've jumped that we need to figure out how to get in there and then figure out how to stick it in. And right. I would say, again, high anxiety moment. But it's much better if, you, again, if you've made the call, I realize there's information we've missed. I'm going to put it back in. If you can figure out how to stick it in the middle of one of your lines mm -hmm. so that it doesn't put the onus on the other person to then pick up the ball with you. Yeah. But if you can throw in between two sentences, you've got a piece of information that the you've missed. The gun is in the drawer. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Um, but if, if you can figure, I mean, again... It's, it's a very high level of difficulty there, but it's that idea of, A, keeping the priority of getting the information that is critical in there, and B, trying to do it in such a way that doesn't require looping back or doesn't mm -hmm. require adding a whole new beat to the scene. And that's a, that's a part where preparation helps. If you know your script inside and out, you know your blocking inside and out, you know... 
if you're so if you're confident in your material, it helps you to make those judgments. Whereas if you're just skating by by the skin of your teeth, it'll be harder to, harder yeah. to make those calls. But if you're like really solid in what's what's going on in in the play, then it, it's easier to. It's do. it's also an argument for a lot of the other things we've talked about in terms of preparation, in terms of the work that that you do to serve a play in that if you just know your text you know and you just you know your text cold but you're really one of those those actors who, whose methodology is just learning the text and 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 you're blocking i mean I, this is again why I, I go back to the thing about spencer tracy that annoys me is you know just know your lines and don't bump into the furniture well what happens if <laughs> what happens if somebody doesn't know their lines or somebody does bump into the furniture? Yeah. What's, you know, what, what, do you, what do you do? And if it's not even you, what, what do you do? If, if you don't have all your preparation to know the world of the play and how to solve a problem within the context of the world of that play, you're, you're really in trouble. If the only, you know, if the only, if the only weapon at your disposal is get to the next line, you know, you're, you're, you run the risk of, of betraying the, the world that, that the, 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 the playwright is trying to to present to the, the audience. Beyond losing your lines, which certainly can happen, what happens, and I think it's happened to most people from time to time, if you feel your performance slipping away from you in the middle of a run? You know, that you can sort of lose, I mean, it, it happens to people, that you sort of lose your place in what it is that you're supposed to be doing, you're beginning to feel disconnected. How do you deal with that? I feel like the answer is always, I mean, hopefully, it, this is true if someone else is on stage, but to go to your other actor, to lock in to your scene partner, and I feel like that, that's gonna help. To go back to the basics, you know, of mm -hmm. listening to what the other person is saying. Yeah. And really hearing it. I think... And, and being with another person on stage. I think you, at that point, to get reconnected, you need to make whatever your task is, you need to make it as simple and as accomplishable as part as possible. I think the reason going to the other actor is really important because if you go, okay, my job right now is just to listen to them. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, and I'm going to just be very present in the moment of, and if you have an activity, you know, I'm, you know, I'm writing something on a pad while I'm listening to the other actor. Okay. I am just going to focus on having this pencil in my hand and writing down what this person says, and I'm going to make that task as simple as possible. That tends to ground you and mm -hmm. and get you back into the world of the play. I think where I've had problems when that's happened, where I feel disconnected, is you sort of start running through all the things you've been working on, and you sort of try to solve the problem globally. Yeah. yeah. By you know because. As the actor, you have ambitions for, for, for how you want to play a character. And if you feel like you're slipping away, you feel like you're letting that character down, you're letting the director down, you're letting the audience down, you're letting the story down. And you have all these things you want to work on and they all start, you know, your, your character life sort of flashes before your eyes. And I think if you can just find something very, very simple that will re-engage you in the reality that you're experiencing, you'll find your way back into the whole play. Yeah, and I think it speaks in a way to, to what you've been you've talked about before, Tim, about uh, the the actor reality and the character reality. That I think many times when actors feel like they're getting lost in something, what they do is they really turn inside. Mm -hmm. Is it's like okay, what like you say, what can I do to solve this? The reality is, in that moment, to put it bluntly, you are the problem. Mm -hmm. You can't solve it. 
you need to go to an activity or to a person and it's that idea of if you that it is amazing if you've done your work you know again weird things happen sometimes things get off track sometimes but if you've done your work and you just talk to the other person say your lines to them listen to what they have to say back to you it is amazing that almost immediately you'll find your level again but it's when you start so trying to solve the problem because then actually what happens is sort of that actor meter versus character meter. Your character is going off the rails, so you crank your actor meter way up, which is only going to push them further off the rails. Well, I think is where actors feel disconnected is because they, they become aware that they're disconnected. And I think that's why having that simple task is, is so essential because, you know, if really where you're feeling disconnected, what's happening is, is you're judging your own performance at that point. You've lost the engagement in the reality of the situation. And so, you know, going internal and trying to find something to re-engage you, I think is only going to bring about more self-judgment. And you, at that point, you can only comment on your performance even more. So the, the, those simple tasks and that sort of very accomplishable, you know, sort of objective tasks and, and, and activities that you'll do will cause you to cease judging yourself and I think that's how you want it getting reconnected. I think the disconnection is essentially the actor judging how they're portraying the character. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also worth remembering it you might not actually be off the rails to people outside of, of you, of your reality. Yeah. And one last thing before we wrap up. What do you do when someone is injured on stage? During the course? During the course of a play. During the course of a performance. This is terrible, but it, ex it depends on the extent of the inju injury and, and what type of injury it is. When we were doing Macbeth, and I was playing Macbeth, and we had guns, there was one night we were doing an extensive uh, combat where I had to roll up onto a, 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 a scaffolding and come to the other side and aim the gun, and there was a night that I rolled, and I rolled wrong, and I shot the gun off in my own face. And with a prop gun, normally the most dangerous place, you know, with a real gun, the most dangerous place to be is on you know, having the barrel facing you. Actually, with a prop gun, the most dangerous place to be is directly behind it because if there's going to be any, you know, backfire, that's where it's going to come from. Um, so I rolled onto the gun that fired and fired in the side of my face. And, you know, I had, uh, I couldn't hear out of one ear and I was burning. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was a very surreal experience. I made the judgment call that, you know, I could I could finish the play. I was in a really weird place. It was like doing the play underwater after getting punched in the head. But but I was you know I and that mean, was like four lines from the end of the play. Yeah yeah yeah. It was. It, I didn't feel like I needed to stop. Um, there was and this didn't involve an actor, but there was I was again Romeo and Juliet in a different production. I was playing Romeo and we were doing it outdoors, and. A woman with obvious, I believe, drug problems who had sort of latched onto me emotionally wandered onto the set while I was speaking with, with Balthazar and came over to try to calm me down. And so I, I sort of, I sort of dealt with oh her. God. I sort of dealt with her, and you know, you know, the, the poor woman is obviously, you know, had, had a drug addiction and mental illness and, and things like that. And I sort of just moved her in between, you know, past us and was just sort of going to try to shuffle her off the stage while I kept talking to Balthazar. And of course, my last little nudge for her off stage, she wound up falling and collapsing. At that point, I had to call call the show. We now have, 
somebody who doesn't even belong in the play, who's now on stage, <laughs> who is now, you know, and they're not well, and they've fallen down. I, I, I have to stop the play at that point. There's a point where, you know, attempting to to continue to, to serve the world of the play is, is you know, against, it, it's just not humane. It's yeah. just not humane. Well, I, th I think that really is the, the key to that, which is, you know, I think we all take what we do really seriously, and it's important to us, and people come to see things, and hopefully you're doing something but ultimately, it's a play. Yeah. If someone has fallen down and fractured their, you know, their their leg, you stop and you deal with it. Uh -huh. You know, and if it's something, and it is, it, I mean, I think it actually is another one of those fairly binary things. It's kind of, actually, you say it's up to the person who's injured, but that's actually not always the case because sometimes people want to power through when they really shouldn't. It doesn't happen often. And, well, actually, it, it does happen often that somebody twists an ankle, that somebody strains. I mean, those sorts of things, especially when you're talking about physical shows, you know, happen. It's mm -hmm. part of the job. And generally, in those cases, you power through. But if somebody is actually hurt, if somebody is actually in danger, you stop. Yeah. It's a play. Yeah. People get it. People get and will be glad that you stopped and got that person to the hospital because otherwise... or stopped and helped that person off the set piece they were falling off of rather than... Because they're know, not watching the play. Yeah, right. In the moment that someone's in danger that's or injured, they're point. only yeah. thinking about the person that's, who's injured or in danger. That's such a good point. You've lost the storytelling element at, the, at that point anyway. So, yeah, you're not serving anything at that yeah. point other than... It's like ignoring the glass of water, but bigger. It's, yeah. you know... It, the reality of the world is that you're in a play yeah. and someone is in danger or injured. I mean, I think it, especially, frankly, if you take what you do seriously, be a professional, don't be a hero. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I think that's a good place to wrap up the conversation. So for all of us at Cry Havoc, thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoy the podcast and uh, would like to let other people know about it, please tell them about it and or go to iTunes and uh, write us a review and give us stars. If you are not subscribed, go to iTunes and you can subscribe there. If you want to know more about the Cry Havoc company and the public events that we have coming up, uh, go to www.cryhavoccompany.org. If you'd like to have any questions or comments, please write to us at podcast at cryhavoccompany.org. And for myself and Jen and Jenny and Tim and everyone at the Cry Havoc Company, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. You can learn more about the Cry Havoc Company at cryhavoccompany.org. Questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhavacompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe.